you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? That music is for everyone, Mr. McMurphy. Yeah, I know, but you think we might ease it down a little bit so maybe the boys didn't have to shout? Huh? What you probably don't realize is that we have a lot of old men on this ward who couldn't hear the music if we turned it lower. That music is all they have. I'm I'm with McMurphy here. I, I think um, loud music is one of those things that you're just like, oh, please, please turn it down. I'm trying to hear my own thoughts. everybody and welcome to the cinema psych podcast podcast where psychology meets film i'm your host dr alex swan and in this episode we're going to be talking about one of my all-time favorites i absolutely love this movie one flew over the cuckoo's nest yes 1975 jack nicholson success of a movie ranked one of the best movies by AFI, by the Academy, of course, it won Best Picture. So many places list this film as one of the top productions ever, ever. And I know film is probably only about 120-something years old, maybe 130, depending on how far you go back. And so that's still a relatively short amount of time for films but i gotta say this one is some of the best work by all people involved and i'm excited to talk about this movie now the movie itself is based on the 1962 novel of the same name by ken casey so the time period that the book is set 1962 matches with how the movie sets the time period. So even though the movie didn't come out until 1975 and toward the end of 1975, I think it released in November, it's one of those movies that sends you back in time but tries to play with the time period a little bit. It is 1963 in the movie, and that plays an important role for how we view some of the psychological concepts in this movie, looking at it from a presentist lens, you know, 50 some years, almost 50 years later and almost 60 years later, if you consider we're looking back at 1963. So again, based on the novel of the same name and a lot of what was in the novel is kept in the movie. But of course, so many things often change when you Uh, adapt a screenplay like that. The film is directed by Milos Forman, and he's got a few credits under his name, but of course this one is his big one. He follows this movie up, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, with Hair, which is great. 
Uh, and then in the 80s, he's got Amadeus. And then in the 90s, he's got The People versus Larry Flint, The uh, Man on the Moon, which is an amazing film with Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman, the, uh, the co- comic. And so he's had some success, but I would say I would characterize this as one of his biggest success, even though Amadeus is also a huge success for him. Uh, because that also won Best Picture. So, like, Milos Forman, with how many movies that he produced and directed in his in his career, he really was a strong filmmaker. And one of the things that I really like about how Milos Forman directed this movie is he wanted as much authenticity as possible. With this movie. So a couple of things that you might find in the the existing trivia uh, about this movie is that one, he wanted it to be filmed on location. So I'll talk a little bit more about how they got permission to uh, film at Oregon State Hospital. Uh, he and, and most of the extras in the movie are those who have. Uh, defined and declarable mental illnesses. They were patients of some hospital or some place, and they were invited to participate as extras. And then the other thing, which I think is pretty amazing, I don't know, I'm not really invested in, in how directors direct, but one of the things that I found interesting about uh, how Foreman directed this movie is that he kept cameras rolling after cut to get reactions of things. And one of the best reactions that he he got was from Louise Fletcher, who plays Nurse Ratched. The scene where McMurphy returns from his electroconvulsive therapy, again, something we'll talk about in this episode, he had the camera on Louise Fletcher for a reaction shot. But the reaction isn't to her given, um, hey, be irritated and upset about how McMurphy is returning from his ECT. No, it was her reaction from getting direction from Milos Forman, which I think is amazing directing. Because... Sometimes you don't get the right reaction as as a director. Maybe you don't get the right reaction from your uh, from your your actors. And so you could take after take after take after take. He didn't get what he wanted from Louise Fletcher. And so uh, in response to McMurphy returning from his ECT. So he got it from his own in- interaction with Louise Fletcher, which I think is amazing because most of the time that kind of directing and coaching and feedback and notes and all of that stuff happens off camera. But of course, this reaction did not, which I think is pretty amazing. And you see that quite a bit throughout, you know, when there are scenes or shots of different people, even uh, people with speaking roles in this movie, you get that um, you get that kind of authentic feel. So I, I appreciate that from Foreman. Now, again, this is a wonderfully acted movie. Of course, I mentioned McMurphy a bunch of times. 
And they haven't mentioned the actor. Of course, the inimitable, because I love doing uh, my Jack Nicholson expressions. Jack Nicholson plays Randall P. McMurphy. And uh, we'll talk a lot about McMurphy in this episode. Louise Fletcher, as I said, plays Nurse Ratched. A few other actors in this movie are pretty awesome. Okay, so this movie introduces Brad Dourif as Billy Bibbit, which is play he plays a pivotal role. Brad Dourif is a scary actor, if you've seen his other roles. Uh, Will Sampson, William Redfield, Sidney Lassick, Christopher Lloyd. I mean, come on, plays a violent dude uh, with major outbursts uh, at Max Tabor. Danny DeVito plays a child-like character, probably a little delusional. Danny DeVito, oh my gosh, it's so good. And the list goes on and on. I'm not going to name off everyone, but like, I definitely wanted to mention Christopher Lloyd and Danny DeVito. It's just... They're just solid performances all around. I absolutely love this movie. So let's talk about the psychological concepts in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now look, I'm, I'm voluntary here, see? I'm not committed. I don't have to stay here. I mean, I can go home anytime I want. You can go home anytime you want. That's it. You're bullshitting me. No. He's bullshitting me, right? No, Randall. He's telling you the truth. As a matter of fact, there are very few men here who are committed. There's Mr. Bromden, Mr. Tabor, some of the chronics, and you. Cheswick, hmm? you're voluntary? Mm-hmm. Scanlon? Billy, for Christ's sakes, you must be committed, right? No, 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 no. Um, um, I mean, you're just a young kid. What are you doing here? You ought to be out in a convertible while bird-dogging chicks and banging beaver. What are you doing here, for Christ's sake? It's funny about that. Well, Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Mm-hmm. Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it. All right, friends, let's talk about this movie. This is a solo episode, so it's just me, just got me. Uh, this is... I'm recording this during my spring semester spring break, and I kind of wanted to give uh, and just wanted to throw my thoughts out into the world on this. Of course, this isn't coming going out until the end of March. So, you know, just wanted to put it out there. I realized that I hadn't gotten this movie in three, almost four years now, hadn't got this movie up on to the list, which I think is a bit of a travesty, but you know, here we are. I want to start my discussion of this film, and at the end, please stay tuned. At the end, I will ask for your input on how you might use this film in 
a psychology course or just how what the things that you found uh, directed at psychology work for you in this film. So please stay tuned. I have that at the end of the episode. But I want to start this episode or this discussion with a quote that I found from the British Psychological Society. It's a, a, a post from 2012 by Richard S. Halam and Michael P. Bender. And they recount a tragic tale of a person named David who spent, uh, I want to say, five-ish years in a psychiatric facility. It doesn't say where, but I'm I'm assuming that this is in the United Kingdom. Uh, I can't, I, I've read through it and I haven't grabbed it, but I would imagine that this is the British Psychological Society, so I imagine their their tale is from a British psychiatric facility, which most of the time up through, you know, the 1970s, 1980s was very similar to the United States. 1970s brought about health insurance while uh, in the United States, while in the UK it was National Health Service. So, I mean, there was a divergence there, of course. But the film is set in 1963. And this quote that I found from 2012 rings true still today. And it's actually quite tragic. So to start off on a bit of a dour note, I want to read to you this quote again by David, uh, somebody who at the end of his life, um, he died by suicide in 1971. Um, and he was, like I said, a patient at a psychiatric facility from, I think, 66 to 71. And he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so here is the quote. I am beginning to realize that most people want something from me. My employer, my sweat. The shops, my money. My brother, my ear. My father, my misery. My doctor and social workers, my mind. Is there no escape from this accursed society? And he wrote this down in his journal in May 1971 and died by suicide shortly uh, shortly after that. So this is one of the few last things that he said to the world before uh, leaving it. And it rings so very true today as it did in 1971. What does this have to do with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? I think a lot. So I want to start by talking about the state of the psychiatric facility that is portrayed in the movie, the care that is portrayed in the movie, and the care that is that is that was typical in the 1960s and perhaps even before to get us started, because that is a pretty gnarly quote by someone who was essentially tormented for five years. I'm going to link the blog post of from the BPS, the British Psychological Society, so you can read more of his journal entries from the 60s, uh, from the late 60s, to, and, and it's sort of a, a digest by these two authors on uh, his particular experience. So I, I suggest reading more. Uh, please do, and, and, and let me know what you think of it. So in the movie, 
just to give you some background here, uh, I'm going to go into in the second segment, going to go into McMurphy as a person and the traits and his actions and his behaviors. But just to lay the lay the the plot out here, uh, Randall McMurphy is a Korean War veteran and he is uh, serving time at an Oregon work farm. So uh, out hard outside hard manual labor. Uh, and and he he is sent there because of uh, statutory rape of of a teenage uh, girl, and we can assume that he was in his late twenties because he is said to be thirty years old at the start of the movie. So in his late twenties, that and so he he raped a fifteen year old girl, and he doesn't want to work at that farm anymore. So he pretends to be insane, and he gets referred to the Oregon State Hospital. Now, the Oregon State Hospital that he is referred to is the one that's mentioned in the book, which is it was very important to Foreman. Uh, and, and they got uh, permission to film at Oregon State Hospital, which is in Salem, Oregon, the capital of Oregon, uh, because Foreman wanted to have the look and feel of the film as close to the experience as possible for 1975 and later audiences, right? Sort of a snapshot in time. And this is incredibly important because around this time in the 1960s, uh, the industry was moving away from this model, moving away from this model. And um, one one source that I found suggested that by the 1950s, the death knell for these kinds of asylums, for these kinds of hospitals, were already being sounded. Okay, So these hospitals were on their way out. And one of the reasons for this was because of a nursing home model that was being developed, right? Training nurses, cranking out nurses. Where do they go? Well, we can set up homes that are offered by church organizations, by uh, other nonprofit organizations, by for-profit organizations. I mean, that's what our model is now, right? We have nursing homes for the elderly. We have nursing homes for uh, memory uh, issues. We have nursing homes for uh, incapacitated individuals, you know, people in persistent vegetative states, things like that. They're not spending their time at hospitals anymore. They're either, and, and then we also have hospice care, which is a relatively new invention in uh, healthcare, right? A place where you can go to then live comfortably under palliative care to die. Um, not surrounded by uh, sterile, four sterile white walls and the constant hullabaloo of a hospital, right? So there was a shift in the 1950s to this model, okay, uh, as people started getting older. So the bright idea was to move people who had either mild or moderate and also severe mental illness who may not have had violent tendencies to these kinds of homes. In addition, new medication was being developed over and over and over. Like the amount of 
innovation that was happening in the pharmaceutical industry from the 1950s on even to today is astounding because we go from terrible grandfather medications to much better children and grandchildren medications. So ones that are built on uh, existing ideas and we get better. And you can see this very clearly in the antipsychotic where Thorazine was like a massive success in the 1940s in treating psychotic disorders, but it came with a cost. And that cost, because of the dopamine inhibition, led to issues in movement because not only is dopamine implicated in and the overabundance of dopamine this is the dopamine theory of schizophrenia implicated in psychosis well when you take it down well dopamine is used for movement and smooth movement and if you don't have enough dopamine for smooth movement you end up with tremors and a condition called tardive dyskinesia and it was a massive blow to this industry but of course innovation 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 led to um chlor uh chlorpromazine i'm i don't know if i'm saying that right i probably don't have i have the accent on the wrong syllable probably um was a, a a newcomer in the 1950s and into the 1960s which had fewer side effects like tardive dyskinesia which allowed treatment of these more severe psychiatric systems, right? And then as we progress in the 1970s, more onus of community mental health, which still was quite stigmatized and still quite and, and still is, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I don't think anybody has any uh, delusions about how mental health Issues are still stigmatized, even though we're talking about it more. I mean, you have a, a a loud, I don't know, majority or minority. I'm not entirely sure that still say, you know, just go get a go, just go take a walk in the woods when it's not that simple, you know. So in the 1970s, the onus for mental health treatment was put to the community. So the state started backing away from it from these large hospitals that you see in the movie, they started backing away from it. And they were like, we don't want to deal with this anymore. So the community mental health model and system was born in the 1960s, okay? So you can see that you, you're, taking a, 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 you're taking a look at a shift in the treatment of mental health issues. And then you have McMurphy, who decides that he is going to pretend to be insane, which, by the way, not only depicts a broken system, but insane, insanity is a legal word and not associated with mental health. We say insane all the time. Bro, that was insane. Like, whoa, it was totally wild, man. But insane in this context is a legal definition of how this works. And this is one of the few ways in which these state hospitals, much aligned with state prisons, were keeping the hospital, psychiatric hospital system limping along. And of course, some of that still exists today, but no real psychiatric hospitals, especially at the state level, exist. They were probably all 
consumed by for-profit hospital systems or maybe non-profit hospital systems, but private enterprise is now what is going on, right? And so you have a situation of a changing tide, though that isn't really depicted in the movie, but it is interesting that one of the things you will learn that separates McMurphy from the rest of the patients at this hospital is that other than Chief, they are all free to leave when they want, which is not true of McMurphy's situation because he is a ward of the state. He is an inmate still. He still has to legally be kept away from the general population of the state of Oregon, right? And if this doesn't work, that is, his experience at the hospital doesn't work, then he could go back to the farm. Of course, we don't see that in this movie because of other mental health treatments. What were those treatments? Well, we see a very, very gnarly scene, very gnarly scene of electroconvulsive therapy, which of the three shock therapies, the one that's depicted in the movie is electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, which is still used today. It is an accepted shock therapy now, and it was relatively new at the time. And the idea was that the brain uses electricity to send signals amongst itself. Uh, and, uh, well, and, and we, we, we already knew at the time what, what kind of electrical signals it was. It was, you know, it's, it's biochemical electricity, ionic movement as opposed to uh, electron movement, which is quite interesting. I mean, you can make the argument that all electricity is, is based on electrons, and that makes sense. Um, from a uh, sort of uh, non-physicist, non-chemist point of view. But uh, instead of ionic energy that uh, we describe, you know, talking about action potentials and stuff with our students, is that this is ca and can be read by the movement of electrons. And so this therapy was developed upon the belief that if you just shock the brain... Over a period of, you know, several uh, treatments, right, S several individual shocks, that eventually the brain will reset itself and act in a way that is in accordance with the uh, overarching societal norms. You only see it once in the movie. It's hard to know whether or not McMurphy in the movie uh has other episodes other treatments like this but it is a jarring and i show it uh even when i don't show the movie i show this clip to my students when i talk about treatment and uh obviously i give them a content warning because it is brutal it is super gnarly and i feel no remorse about this pun it is a shocking scene because it it starts so quietly so calmly and in the scene mcmurphy says 
when they're putting on the electroconvulsive gel on his forehead. He says, a little dab will do ya. Improvised by Jack Nicholson. References an advertising jingle of bri- uh, Brill Cream Hair Cream, which was a popular hair care product for men in the 1960s and 1970s. So obviously... It's not anachronistic because it's the 1960s. Maybe a little dab will do you. Uh, you know, maybe it's a little uh, before McMurphy's time in 1963. It, it's kind of funny, though, because he he has no idea about what's about to happen. Right. And he's chewing on a piece of gum and the nurse says spit. And he's like, what? She's got to get rid of the gum. So he spits it into her hand. And then she puts a massive bite plate, a spongy little uh, rubber bite plate in his mouth. And he's like, what, you know, what's that for? So you don't bite your tongue. When you have to tell somebody that about to get about to get a treatment that they have no idea about. Right. That's the other thing that's uh, that's part of this. He has no idea what is about to happen to him. No idea what's about to happen to him, and yet goes in just a happy little camper until that bite plate goes in, and she's like, we don't want you to, you know, eat your tongue. Bite off your tongue. We don't want you to do that. And then as soon as that thing gets put in his mouth, the electrodes go on his uh, on the side of his temples, and they just crank it. There's no warning, nothing. They just crank it, and... They they shock him. They shock him once, and he ends up having a uh, a convulsion. Obviously, because that's exactly what massive amounts of electricity to your head will do. He goes into some convulsions, and the the great thing about the way that uh, Foreman Nicholson and Fletcher uh, did for this project was they watched somebody in, in 1975 go through ECT. So Jack Nicholson could then put that on film, right? Could put that on film, which I think is really solid. But of course, it is such a jarring scene. Uh, I'm going to play it for you now, and that's the kind of warning that I give for my students. So if you want to skip a couple of minutes so you don't have to hear McMurphy go... Uh, make his uh, do his convulsions, then you can then skip on ahead. Take a cigarette break, boys. Easy. I'll be fine. You seated. Ah. Would you sit up, please? Sure. Love to. Not a boy. There. Uh... Might be a little fluid in them boots, you know what I mean, boys? Just a little leak. Light shine, boys, and send the specimen to Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> you know what I mean? All right, out with your gum. Huh? Out with your gum. Uh-huh. Okay, this won't hurt, and it'll be over in just a moment. Uh-huh. What's that? Conducting. A little dab will do you. Right, Mr. Jackson? Open your mouth. What's that? This will keep you from biting your tongue. Well, now just bite down on it. That's right. Just bite down. Huh? Now bite down on it. Okay. 
You creeped, you lunatic, mental defective. Let's hear it for Blue Goose Randall back in action. Nice shirt, Chesaroo. <laughs> Look at the faces on you. Look at you. The other treatment that I wanted to talk about in this movie is uh, what you get at the end. So, spoiler alert: in case you don't have, don't want it spoiled and and have never seen the the film, uh, I do know that the ending is quite shocking to people um from a uh from the standpoint of a storytelling narrative from a a, a narrative device and you know honestly the the film's been out for you know almost 50 years now so i don't feel bad about spoiling the ending but i i do think knowing about the ending takes away from some of the plot and the, the character development I don't think that we are supposed to care that much about McMurphy in the way that you would feel about an actual protagonist. This is a clearly a broken man. Of course, we'll get to that in the next segment. But but clearly a broken man. And he goes through a treatment that essentially ends his life. I know he doesn't actually end his own life. And I know this treatment doesn't actually kill him. Chief does. Chief smothers him. Uh, even though the picture that is used on the poster of this film shows Jack Nicholson as McMurphy looking lovingly and hope wistfully and hopeful uh, over uh, up and away, he's not the one who flew the flew over the cuckoo's nest. Chief Chief is the one that flew over the cuckoo's nest. He escaped. Not McMurphy. So when you think about this movie and the one who flew over the cuckoo's nest, McMurphy loses as our main character. He loses. So I mentioned that he gets a treatment. That treatment is a frontal lobotomy or leucotomy, as it is sometimes referred to. So it is treated, it, 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 it is a treatment that involves some pretty gnarly things by today's standards, okay, by today's standards. It was invented by Antonio Ega Moniz, a Portuguese neuroscientist, and he discovered that if you go through the eye, through the um, orbital bone, you can reach the, uh, what is right above it, the prefrontal cortex, and using a special piece of equipment that goes up through the eye and the orbital bone, you can sever the anterior portion of the frontal lobes, this prefrontal cortex, from the rest of the brain. 
This effectively makes the patient more docile. Other reasons for doing so was that they tried to make um, it a treatment for epilepsy. They tried to make it a treatment for um, psychiatric disorders, They of like schizophrenia, especially to make somebody more docile, okay? And so it's a pretty barbaric idea. Uh, it really only was used for a good, I don't want to say 20-ish years, maybe? Because, honestly, it, it was being used rather terribly, I would say. By the 1950s, some estimates suggested that uh, 20,000 lobotomies had been performed by 1951 and that more than half were women. Not even just in the United States. In Canada, too. So these, these, this treatment was making stuporous, was making confused, incontinent, seizure-prone, docile automatons. And sometimes in perpetual and persistent vegetative states. And of course, as the 1950s came to a close, the vast majority of uh, lobotomies began to wane. The vast majorities of countries decided to ban or abandon this treatment. Like, rough stuff, man. Rough stuff. And so this happens to McMurphy. And you can imagine that in 1960s, although it was on the decline in the United States, it was still being performed on probably some of the most violent, uncontrollable people there. And I don't think that the hospital would have done it to McMurphy had not the events of the movie transpired, which is pretty wild. Ken Casey describes it as a punishment called frontal lobe castration, after which, quote, there's nothing in the face, just like one of those store dummies. And in one patient, they describe, quote, you can see by his eyes how they burned him out over there. His eyes are all smoked up and gray and deserted inside. And they reference this in the movie, too, very fleetingly, and it's quite uh it's quite subtle how they reference it that this it foreshadow McMurphy's fate because it's punishment and control and of course they can't control McMurphy after Billy dies by suicide by cutting his throat with glass and McMurphy tries to strangle Nurse Ratched because of how she treated Billy it had to it, it had to happen this way in the context of the movie the logic of the movie said, okay, McMurphy's uncontrollable. There's only one option left. He says he's insane. He says he's insane. We have noticed that he is this way. We can't control him. This is our only opportunity. And that's why Chief smothers him. He does not want him to live like this. He doesn't want him to live like it. It's pretty gnarly. It's, and, and France was perhaps... The last country to stop doing lobotomies. They're really not done anymore. 
Medication's so much better. France in the 1980s, maybe done a few, okay? But most others are done. We're done doing that. And so I like how the film doesn't shy away from it based on the time period. And I like how I can describe to students where documentaries or actual film of lobotomized patients exist or don't exist, that we can that we can see what the effects were and how it was used and why it was used and why more than half of lobotomies in the quote-unquote developed world were of women. It's tragic. It's a tragic ending. And I think that while we are not necessarily supposed to care about a criminal who does a very bad thing to start up the events of this movie. We are meant to care about this procedure being done to control people, being done to remove variables from a given situation. And I view this movie as a uh, passionate anti-death penalty individual. I, I honestly believe that this is a, a, a fate worse than death, even though he only lives the fate for a little while. A fate worse than death. And uh, it definitely violates the, the Eighth Amendment of the Bill of Rights and the U.S. Constitution, in my view. It, uh, a lobotomy is a cruel and unu unusual punishment. Not only does it fit both of those words absolutely there are only a few punishments that still exist that I can I would consider to be crueler or more unusual. <laughs> I just I mean that's this is my opinion of course and I think the film really hits that on the head. Right? Hits the nail directly on the head. You care about the system doing this to McMurphy even if you think McMurphy didn't deserve it or did deserve it. Even if you think McMurphy deserves some kind of punishment for his crimes and his behavior in the rest of the movie. Nobody is saying you should cheer for McMurphy. I don't think you should cheer for McMurphy. He is a flawed, a heavily flawed character, but he does get the shaft. And I think that's worth noting here. You're deaf and dumb. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you fooled him, Chief. You fooled him. You fooled him all. <laughs> what are we doing in here, Chief? Huh? What's us two guys doing in this place? 
get out of here. Out. Canada. Canada. We'll be there before these son of a bitches know what hit them. So I love this movie and how it portrays uh, the treatment of people in psych- uh, in psychiatric settings. Uh, I love how it's a snapshot in time of a changing environment, a changing field, medication, the closures of hospitals, the use of newer ECT therapies, which are brutal, the use of a control tactic of lobotomy it's it's all there and it's so useful especially as we move away far far away from these more barbaric ways in which the mentally ill were treated we move away from that and have newer situations and and students who have no idea what the past really looked like when treating mental illness it is so much better than it was even 100 years ago. So, so much better. But of course, we don't really know that. And students don't really know that. Our young adults don't really know. They, they still know that mental health is stigmatized still. Still the, uh, weird and wrong that you have depression or anxiety or whatever. But it's far better than it was back then. And, and, and again, that's my opinion. Of course, the views... Uh, of the host do represent the views of the podcast. So there we go. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be back with talking a little bit more about McMurphy and some of the things that uh, we can use to characterize him. Stay tuned. Hey friends, Astrid here. You may know me from such films as Crazy Rich Asians, White Oleander, or How to Train Your Dragon. Wait, what what was that? I wasn't in those. I wasn't in those. Okay, that wasn't me. Ooh, okay, well. Astrid here. You may know me as the other half of your favorite podcast host, Dr. Alex Swan. And I'm here to shout out listeners like you. Thanks for supporting the pod. Whether that's buying merch, sharing episodes on social media, or making donations. You can visit cinemasightpod.swansight.com to get your hands on previous episodes, or if you're like me, just another hoodie because we live in the Midwest. We appreciate you. Now, back to the show. All right, y'all, we're back talking One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Thank you for joining me. And uh, expect, uh, even though you heard Astrid say about all the ways you can uh, support the podcast, I am going to be doing a massive overhaul of the podcast and the way that it is that way, the way that you can support it um, and expand the merch options and all of that. I, I Even though... I'm not asking you to do that and and uh, contributing, you know, a couple of dollars, a couple of pennies here and there. 
Um, I really want to make the merch options uh, a good place to be. We're coming up on the fourth year anniversary of this podcast, and I think that with uh, this being episode 61, really the 62nd episode of the podcast, I kind of want to, you know, get more merch options out there, some more quotes, some additional items, that kind of thing. So that's what we're working towards. I appreciate any kind of support you do for the podcast, being on it, sharing it, liking, subscribing, doing all that kind of stuff. I really appreciate it because this is a real passion project for me and I enjoy any kind of feedback that I get. So I appreciate it. I just want to tell you that. So let's talk about McMurphy and his characterization in this movie. He is, by all accounts, a very flawed person. And of course, I said that already many times, many times talking to you uh, in this episode, but let's let's go into it a little bit more, right? Okay, so he's a Korean War veteran, okay? 1963, Vietnam ha- hasn't started yet, but, um, you know, as I said, he likely may have either, w- one of two things I think could be true about him and his character, just by extrapolating to the way that we analyze film and this kind of thing. So he's a Korean War veteran, like I said, and he he likely has probably some issues, trauma-induced issues, if especially if he was on the ground fighting during the Korean War, like post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress co- disorder can manifest in many, many ways, uh, and uh, violent outbursts is just one of those ways. Now, it's not common for those outbursts to be that way, but of course, we don't know too much about McMurphy. And so this might be the case. On the other hand, he may just have been an aggressive person beforehand, okay? A very aggressive person in the sense that um, he probably got into fights at school, likely wasn't the top of his school, uh, his, you know, his, his academics, uh, likely wasn't uh, destined for a life at a desk job in the 1950s. And so he did what probably many young men at the time did when the call came out from you know, only a, about five years after World War II had ended, right? The call comes back out like, oh, we got to go help our our South Korean friends from the antagonistic North Korea. And so he was like, what am I going to what else am I going to do with my talents? So I'm going to jump into this role. He goes in. So what kind of person could do that. And again, I disclaim here that I am not a clinical psychologist, so most of what I'm going to describe is just from my own understanding about personality theory, Um, and of course I'm not going to be talking about personality types here, but I am going to talk about um, what kinds of characteristics McMurphy may have had that led him to how we see him and how he comes to his end at the end of the movie, right? And one of those theories is called the dark triad theory, described as, uh, by Delroy's Paul Huss um, and Kevin M. Williams in 2002. So it's about 20-year-old uh, idea, okay? And dark triad is specifically referencing three personality traits. And those three personality traits are psychopathy, but 
more importantly, antisocial personality disorder, if we want to put a name to the psychopathy, right? So antisocial behavior, impulsivity, selfishness, callous and unemotional traits, and remorselessness. Now let's go through this one before we get into the other two. What psychopathy does McMurphy portray in this movie? And he portrays all of it, right? So antisocial behavior, I mean, the the precursor story of statutory rape of a 15-year-old girl, I would say that is pretty antisocial behavior, okay? But he also engages in violent behavior in the uh, hospital. He tries to violently attack uh, Nurse Ratched after he sees that it was her who led to Billy um, slicing his own throat open. Uh, she is in a neck brace the next day. She has a raspy throat. I mean, he was really trying to squeeze the life out of her. So definitely antisocial behavior. Impulsivity, getting the guys into the bus to take them to the beach. Really impulsive. Selfishness, of course. He doesn't want to work at the work farm anymore. So, yeah. Trying to get into a hospital to be a little bit more laid back and um, easy going with the rest of his life because while he's you know, sentenced to prison time, definitely, 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 definitely selfish and callous and unemotional traits. Yeah, I, I suppose that he portrays all of that throughout the movie, um, really only attaching himself to Billy. Maybe he sees a little bit of Billy in him. I, I'm not entirely sure how you'd want to ca characterize that. But yeah, definitely psychopathic, right? Antisocial personality disorder. Certainly. Now let's go to the next one. Narcissism, right? Uh, definitely a narcissistic person. So one of the uh, interesting things that you get from his opening conversation with the doctor of the hospital. He's talking about the doctor's huge fish catch. And he's playing it up. Like, well, he's also trying to butter up, which is going goes to my next point of Machiavellianism. But um, the grandiosity uh, and playing that up and, and trying to get on the doctor's good side uh, is pretty gnarly. Pride, egotism, and a lack of empathy. Of course... If we're going to go with remorselessness, of course there's a lack of empathy. He doesn't know about the struggles of any of these other men. He thinks they're all weak and ridiculous. And the only one he identifies with is Chief because Chief is uh, seemingly mute and deaf. And he's neither of those things, which is quite the uh, quite quite the turn of events for McMurphy. But he definitely shows some narcissistic behavior. Uh, the scene where he's trying to get Ratched to turn down the music, uh, one of his first days in the hospital in the groups uh, in the group session, uh, he's trying to get it to turn it down because he just he wants his own peace of mind and he doesn't care about anyone else. And that's of course what Nurse Ratched is trying to explain to him. That the music is for everyone, not just for me or the nursing staff. And so, you know what? You got to deal with it. It's going to be loud, right? And then finally, Machiavellianism. 
course, named for Niccolo Machiavelli. The idea here with Machiavellianism is that somebody really doesn't care about interpersonal relationships and having all the touchy-feely inner, all of that, you know, doesn't really care for having the, the emotion in relationships. Relationships are merely transactional, right? And of course, this also plays with uh, narcissism and the lack of empathy because we don't care about who the other person is in a relationship. And so we're just going to get ours and everything is transactional and that's great. A lack of concern for conventional morality. He's in prison. And then he's in a he's a uh, custodial inmate in a state psychiatric facility. So, I mean, you know, it, it, there's a reason for both of those things. And uh, I think that he really, really shows that the exploitation of uh, manipulation and exploitation of others clearly shown throughout the movie. He's trying to tell Every single person, patient there to break out of their shell. Of course, Billy being one of the big ones. He's trying to make Billy into more of himself rather than recognizing that Billy is a very flawed and um, troubled person. And McMurphy's behaviors and McMurphy's personality and traits do not uh, do not necessarily fit onto a person like Billy. He's trying to get Ratched to loosen up, right? Trying to get Ratched to do this. He wants to escape, and he tries to ask people to get uh, tries to get people to get him to escape, right? He, he again, he tries to manipulate the doctor at the beginning by playing to his strengths and trying to buttering it up, butter him up, flatter him, all of that. And then, of course, McMurphy acts in his own self-interest. And for Machiavellianism to be a personality trait that you would describe to somebody, of course, we all act in our own self-interest, but a higher level of self-interest. McMurphy does everything in this movie for himself. Every single one. Especially by using the term that I mentioned earlier, insane. Again, a legal term, right? Somebody who's not fit to stand trial, somebody who doesn't understand why they're in trouble. All of these things are incredibly important for sorting people who are fit and people who are not fit to go through the criminal justice system. It's important that we get that right because, again, the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution says that we cannot engage in cruel and unusual punishments. And I like to sit here and believe that we can be a society that gives as much effort to that amendment as we do to the first and the second, and especially the second amendment. So this is an incredibly important word that keeps people separated. And when you use it incorrectly, it diminishes the ability for someone to use this term effectively. Now, every case is different and every person is going to be different, but it diminishes the effectiveness of this word. And of course, yes, we use it in common discourse and lay people use it regardless of its in, in, uh, connotation or denotation. But in the legal system, it is important to note that this is a word 
for that and not to describe mental health. It's pejorative when used for mental health. And McMurphy pretends to be insane. And I don't think he really pretends all that much. He's kind of weird and kind of off all over the place. I, I don't really know how to describe how he got away with, because we sweet, you know, got away with uh, acting quote unquote insane, because we really, we don't see it. We don't see it at all. And it's strange to me that we don't see it at all. And it's funny too, because he doesn't realize this gambit puts him and his violent behavior into sharp focus, which makes him the target of Nurse Ratched. She knows exactly what he's doing. She knows exactly who he is. She knows his file. He's not putting one over her. She's a member of the staff. Yeah, she's not a doctor. She's not one treating him. But she knows exactly the kind of person he is. At least I think. She knows he is bullshitting everyone. The doctor, the uh, parole board, the uh, Department of Corrections in the state of Oregon, uh, all of the patients, every single one, she knows that he is the top bullshitter. And that, as well as knowing why he is in prison in the first place for the rape of a teenage girl. She knows who he is, and she counts him. She clocks him the moment he walks in that door. And, of course, we are supposed to not like Nurse Ratched because we're supposed to follow McMurphy on his journey of self-discovery, his journey of improvement. He doesn't improve. The dark triad personality theory really encapsulates a person that may be beyond redemption and not somebody that you want to work with unless they recognize that they act in this way. But of course, dark triad means something here. We've got three pretty terrible personality ideas, personality components, really, really bad. And it's really hard to break from this dark triad, really hard. First, you got to recognize you got a problem. McMurphy does not recognize he has a problem. If anything, even though Nurse Ratched is a um, kind of an awful person, when we look at it in, as audiences from the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, 2020s, we look at her and we're like, oh my God, she is a really awful person. She is doing exactly what she needs to do to prevent McMurphy from taking his dark triad traits and just running over this hospital. And she is not fully successful because she loses a patient in Billy. We don't see how that affects her, but I would imagine that the way she's characterized throughout the movie does affect her. And she blames McMurphy for it while he blames her for it. And you can see that the two are at odds and will always be at odds. But we're not supposed to root for McMurphy. He <laughs> is a pretty terrible person and he doesn't go on a hero's journey he doesn't go on a quest of self-redemption he loses and that's incredibly important he loses and if you're describing somebody with the dark triad in general uh in film and in tv shows these are the antagonists 
These are the antagonists because they have traits that as a society don't work. They don't work for the health of the society. And unfortunately, we got some dark triad people up in the uh, leadership of various organizations. And it's entirely possible that Machiavellianism is part of the reason they're there. Now we're going into unbridled thoughts of Dr. Swan, which I think goes to show how much I've spent thinking about this movie since I saw it 20-something years ago. <laughs> I think it, 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 and I wish I had seen it sooner, honestly, before I did. But of course, my early 2000s phase was just like consuming as many movies as I could get my hands on. And this was one of them. And I have watched it several times since. And I love it. And you're not going to pull me too far away from my characterization of both McMurphy and Ratched. Louise Fletcher plays her phenomenally. And both of their award sweeps, essentially, they got the Golden Globes for it. They got the Academy Awards for it. They got the BAFTAs for it. I mean, it's, it's all there. And they deserved all of it because you can dissect every single scene, every bit of dialogue to find the kind of person that McMurphy is, the kind of person that Nurse Ratchet is. And it's truly amazing. R.P. McMurphy. It's a hell of a fish there, Doc. Yeah. Isn't that a dandy? Yeah. It's about 40 pounds, ain't it? No, 32. 32. But I'll tell you, it took every bit of strength I had to hold it out there while the guy took the picture. Every damn bit. Probably um, that chain didn't help it any either. Well, you didn't weigh the chain, did you, Doc? No, I didn't weigh the chain. <laughs> but damn, I'm awful proud of that picture. That's the first uh, Chinooker I ever caught. It's a nice one. Mm -hmm. So those are my thoughts on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now, the qu some questions that I had for the audience here is, mainly, was Mc McMurphy's fate the only option? As I said, I don't know if he was uh, irredeemable, but he certainly shows that his behavior is pretty tragic and pretty gnarly. So was he truly irredeemable or could there have been more time, more effort put into him? I don't know if the apparatus in the 1960s was strong enough for that amount of work. And of course, again, McMurphy as a person would need to agree to that. He would need to grow as an individual. But you give me your thoughts. Was he irredeemable? And even if you consider the dark triad personality theory, was being in a psychiatric hospital a good place for McMurphy? Would he have fared better under a different kind of care? Or... In other words, would he have been that kind of person staying in prison? There are a lot of people who need mental health care in our prisons now as the most incarcerated country on this planet ever. Would he have fared better or fared worse in a different treatment or lack thereof situation? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. Would he have fared better? Now, my final question to you about this, here's another question about McMurphy. Was the lobotomy the only way to control this very violent person of Randall McMurphy? Could there have been another way 
to treat him. Even after the events of Billy and McMurphy trying to strangle Ratchet, was, would, could there have been another option? Again, cruel and unusual punishment is really what I want to focus on here. While it is historically accurate, it seems as though there was a missed opportunity there. Now, of course, in the, in the nature of the novel and the, and the nature of the movie, of course, it feels as though lobotomy was the only reason. But is it? Should we replace lobotomy with other forms of punishment, like the death penalty? I don't know. I mean, I have my opinions, of course. You've heard them. My last question to you, dear listener, is just your other thoughts. How do you view this movie? What are the things that you talk about in relation to psychology, whether just amongst friends or in your classes? What is it about this movie that makes it one of the best? Please let me know. I would love to hear from you. Facebook at SinSidePod. Twitter at SinSidePod. That is Sin with a C for cinema and not Sin with an S for what you do uh, blasphemously. So since iPod, Twitter, and Facebook, you can catch me directly on Twitter at Prof A Swan. That's where you can find me directly. I would love to hear from you. You can email us at cinemapsychpod at gmail.com. Oh, I would love to hear from you. Or, better yet, leave us a review and rate us on Apple Music, Spotify, all the places. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show and this particular episode. Ooh, it's been so fun to talk to you about my thoughts, unfettered for most of it, on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Again, one of my top films of all time. Definitely in the top 10 there of all the films that I've seen, which is a lot. I just surpassed 2,500 tracked films, which is wild to me. Uh, I've seen over 2,500 films in my life. What crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. I'm glad you're here with me. I'm glad you took the time to listen to this episode. And until the next one, thanks for listening.